Well, good morning, church. Thank you, Jeff, for saying those nice things about me. As you can see, we have a very give-and-take relationship, right? Everything that I have, he takes it, and everything that he has, I take it. We just go back and forth, so it's, it's good, it's good. Um, but if I could, I mean, it's, it is an honor and a, a privilege to be here, to have this opportunity. If I could just, um, just take a moment to, to share with you a way in which you've blessed me, and a way in which I was moved when this happened. So a few weeks ago, um, many of you were probably here for this, Jeff was going through uh, a passage in Timothy, and he was just sharing from his heart his, his love and his desire to be your pastor, um, and just how much he cares for, for this church and for Christ's community. And um, I was moved by that. I, I don't think it's a unique thing for a pastor to love his church, but I do think it's a special thing. And so I know we're blessed by that. I know I'm thankful for that. So, uh, and Kathy, you too, you're involved in this as well. So thank you for just your care and your ministry here on the North Shore. Um, I know many of you uh, maybe don't know me. Um, we're kind of, like Jeff said, new to this church. I do just want to give a quick sort of like one minute overview of who I am because I want to talk more about Jesus than me. But um, I was born and raised in Chalmette. Please don't hold that against me. I know it's kind of risky saying that. But um, I was born and raised in Chalmette. Uh, Jesus saved me uh, by the grace of God when I was nine um, through children's ministry. And uh, so we're thankful for ministries like that. But it wasn't until my time in the youth group um, that I think God really uh, kind of opened my eyes and allowed me to understand that, you know, I can trust Jesus for my salvation, but I also need to trust Jesus as my Lord. And what I mean by that is he is calling us into a relationship that requires us to follow him. And so, um, you know, thankfully there was a man in my life who, who saw it necessary to mentor me and to disciple me. And at around the age of 15 or 16, God just like shifted sort of this, this major, uh, shifted in a major way in my heart and kind of moved my heart towards this relationship where now I'm trying to pursue you, Jesus. What does that look like? And that sort of launched me into the next, you know, 21 years of existence uh, where I was just trying to listen to Jesus and do what he says. And that brought me to uh, where we went to school. It brought me into a relationship with my wife, Tiffany, over there, who we just celebrated our 15th year of marriage. Um, it's brought me into education. Uh, it's brought me kind of into this weird uh, kind of like, I've got, I feel like I got, I've always had one foot in like church world, but then one foot in education as well. Um, and when I landed at North Lake, it was awesome because these two worlds seemed to collide so perfectly. And so I've gotten to do ministry there. As Jeff mentioned, we've uh, moved to Pittsburgh. We were there for a few years helping plant a church. And now we're back here at North Lake on the North Shore and couldn't be more excited about what we're doing. But let's jump into uh, what we will be discussing today. What Jeff asked me to share with you about uh, was the topic of salvation and justification. And I love how Mark started the service this morning by calling this a rehearsal. For many of us, this is uh, something that is familiar to us. We know the story of the gospel. We know the story of sin and Jesus' conquering of that sin and providing us the opportunity for redemption and for life. Um, but I like to think of this topic, or there's two things I like to think about when I think about this topic. Um, the first is just that it's a rehearsal. It's something that should delight your soul, right? We have, I, my wife and I, we have a three-year-old daughter, and she's going through this phase right now where her voice is getting deeper. 
It's not puberty, obviously, but like the other day, she, she called out to me, and it was this, daddy, and I thought there was a grown man sitting on our couch right next to me, but it was not. It was Jade. And so I looked over, but one of the things that has not changed, and I, I love it, is her laugh. Her laugh. It's, it's, the, it's the most innocent, kind of joy-filled laugh, and when I hear it, it delights my soul. So I don't know what that is for you in your life. I don't know if there's something that you can pinpoint right now. And you're like, when I think of this, my soul just rejoices. That is how our self, or that's how we should think about salvation and justification. It should bring us delight to our soul. The other thing I want to point out, and I think we need to acknowledge this before we jump into this topic, um, is we have to acknowledge that when we talk about salvation and justification, we have to recognize God's grace. And, and all of it, and all of it. Um, God's grace is all over this topic of salvation and justification. And when I think about God's grace, it falls into this category for me. Maybe you can relate. Uh, that it's easy to explain, but sometimes really hard to understand. Okay, it's easy to explain, sometimes really hard to understand. Uh, something in life that for me is easy to explain, but sometimes hard to understand is coffee. Easy to explain, just beans and water, right? It's a simple, simple recipe, and you get it every morning. Here's how it's hard to understand, right? I had a friend who is looking into launching a coffee shop, and he's doing his research, and he came across a podcast, and I don't remember the name of it, but it is like Nerdville for coffee lovers, all right? It is, it is like a deep dive into how you come to a cup of coffee, and so He's like, Sean, you got to listen to this. Okay, so I, I queue up the first episode, and it's about an hour long, and, and I turned it off after 15 minutes. I was, it, it messed me up. It messed me up. So some things, I'm sure you're all aware of this because it was new to me, but you look a lot smarter. Maybe you knew this already, but here's some things about coffee that are really important, right? Um, first thing is the size of the grind. Super important. Super important. The grind's different sizes, it changes the flavor of the coffee. So you want to make sure your grind is the right size for the brewing method that you're choosing. Learn that in that podcast. Uh, Something else that I learned in that podcast is that coffee does this thing called blooming. Blooming. It doesn't turn into flowers, no. Coffee, when when you pour water on coffee, um, it starts a process of blooming. And if you've ever done like a pour over and pour water on it, what you'll notice is that bubbles start to rise to the top. That's the release of CO2 gas. And this blooming is really important to getting the exact flavor right that you want. If you, if you let it bloom too long, it messes it up. If you let it bloom not enough, it messes it up. You've got to let it bloom for the exact amount of time. I told you this messed me up, okay? Um, and then the coffee bean itself, there's different levels of flavor that can be pulled out, it's the wrong word, the technical word is extracted, that can be extracted from the grind depending on how long it actually sits in the water. So there are some, you know, coffee that is fruitier, more fruitier than acidic, and if you enjoy fruitier flavored coffees, um, you allow it to sit in the water for a a certain amount of time because the fruity flavors kind of get pulled out first, sorry, extracted first. Um, and then if you enjoy more bitter coffee, you let it sit longer because those flavors get extracted towards the end. Um, and then the water. Let me get to the water. You would think just hot water, right? But no, 
232 degrees, too hot. The ideal temperature is 205 degrees. That is the ideal temperature for brewing. I turned it off after 15 minutes. I got all that in 15 minutes, too, by the way, all right? So that, that, that messed me up. Like the next week, I used to just put beans in the machine, press go, and drink it. But now I'm like looking at my grinds. Those look too small, too big. The water the right temperature, right? Simple to explain, sometimes hard to understand. This, to me, is how God's grace is. Because I can explain it in this way, that God's grace is gratuitous. It's generous. He, he pours it out on us. God's grace is undeserved. I can't work any harder to earn more of God's grace. I can't work any less to, to receive less of it. No, God's grace is undeserved. It's freely given. He, it's not on our own merits that we get to encounter God's grace. But it's hard to understand sometimes how God's grace will completely wreck your life. And I mean that in the best way possible, right? Like God's grace gives us freedom. It gives us new passions and desires. It allows us to love people the way that Jesus did. And I don't understand that. I don't understand sometimes how I know my heart and I know what it desires sometimes. But God, God's grace takes those things away and it, and it fixes my heart on the things that he desires. A person impacted by God's grace is more selfless than selfish. They serve others. They sacrifice their own time, money, comfort and convenience to see others flourish. And they do this in humility, desiring for others to experience the life-changing grace that they have. So God's grace, simple to explain, but sometimes hard to understand the depths at which it could change our souls. And so before we jump into salvation and justification, I did want to acknowledge that. I want to, you're going to see that theme kind of run throughout this sermon, this acknowledgement of God's grace. And we're going to be uh, in Ephesians chapter 2. So if you have a Bible and want to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, um, we'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 2 today. And when we talk about the topic of salvation, another word that we use in the church is this word saved. I said this just in describing myself to you, that Jesus saved me when I was nine years old. Um, that word implies uh, two things. It implies first that we're in danger of something, and that we need to be rescued from that danger. So we're in danger, and there needs to be a rescue. A couple of weeks ago, we went to the beach with my family, and it was, a, it was a five-day trip, and we learned on day one that our daughter doesn't like the beach. It's unfortunate for a five-day trip. She neither liked the sand nor the ocean, the two primary components of the beach, right? So she, all she wanted to do was hang out at the pool which was more a burden on my wife than me because she took a lot of that responsibility. But she was in the pool every day, all day. She loved it, right? She was getting more and more comfortable with the water. She had on a little puddle jumper thing, and she'd jump in, swim to the side. And as the days went on, she grew more and more confident. And one day, my wife goes out there with her to the pool. She's putting her stuff down. She hears a splash. She looks. Jade forgot to put on the puddle jumper, and she didn't float back up. She sunk down to the bottom. And so Tiffany very quickly... Uh, jumped in and performed a rescue, right? When we need to be saved, there is a danger that is in front of us or we're presented with a danger and we need a rescue. And so when we talk about salvation, we need to answer the question, what do we need to be saved from? What are we saved from? Paul 
talks about this in Ephesians chapter 2. So if you're there, please follow along with me. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is three of the most depressing pieces of Scripture that we could maybe come across. But listen to how Paul articulates this issue we have with sin. He says that we're dead in the trespasses of this sin. That's the danger in which we need to be rescued from. See, our sin, we could think of it in three different ways. We could think of this rescue in three different ways. That, that this rescue that needs to happen, it, it needs to rescue us from our past sin. See, our past sin, there's a, there's a penalty that needs to be paid for. And this rescue helps pay for that penalty of our past sin. We could look at it this way too, that this rescue needs to save us from the present sin. That's the power of sin. That's the power that sin has over us in the present. That um, because of this rescue, we now have uh, freedom from this power, right? And then we could look at this in a third way, that this rescue needs to save us from the future sins. That this future sin is the presence of sin. And we know from Scripture that in heaven there is no sin. So this rescue rescues us even from the future of sin. So this rescue is saving us from sin but it's saving from the past, present, and future implications of that sin. And when we look at salvation and justification, we need to accept not just the truth about who Jesus is, who is our rescuer, and we'll talk about Jesus a lot in just a second, but we also need to accept the truth about ourselves. is that we as individuals are terribly flawed. I hope that does not offend anyone in here, but it is the reality of our state of being. Paul lays this out to the church in Ephesians. He says that you are by nature sons of disobedience, children of wrath. We are flawed people. And if you don't buy into that, can we just look around? I mean, look at the world right now, right? We're coming out of this pandemic where there's so much depression and anxiety and fear. And what we're seeing from that is this increase in violent crimes across nearly all major urban cities in the United States. In New Orleans alone, there's been more shootings, more carjackings this year than there have in previous years. We're seeing social issues kind of come out of all areas, and these issues are being politicized like they've never been before. And because of that, we are kind of being divided because of who or what we're following, right? If I believe in this person or this agenda, then I have to be against you and that agenda. And it's dividing this, this wedge between us. We're becoming, um, you know, uh, uh, disunited. We're being divided. There you go. We're being divided, right? And social media is only amplifying this. If you, if you think about how social media is made, it's, it's designed, it's engineered to kind of leave you in a vacuum, The more you click on certain links, the more things come in your feed that that speak to your interests, speak to your likes, speak to your desires. And so you're only getting further and further down the rabbit hole, right? And so we live in a world where we see the flaws manifesting all around us. And 
I don't think I need to convince anyone that we are in desperate need of a rescue. Right? When we talk about salvation, we see it in two parts. It's the danger that we're in. We are in need of that rescue, and that's being saved from sin. But we also get to talk about the rescuer. We get to talk about Jesus, right? Saved by whom? And we're going to be in Ephesians 2, 4 through 9 for this, but we know that it's through Jesus that we are saved, through God's grace, his great love for us, that he gave us this rescuer, Jesus. Check out what Paul says in verse 4. So after painting a really bleak picture in verses 1 through 3, he starts off verse 4 by saying this, but God. What an incredible two words to land right here in this passage, right? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By what? There's that word. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, Paul outlines in the first three verses of chapter 2 the things in which we need a rescue from. We need a rescue from sin, we need a rescue from death, from Satan, from our old nature, from worldly living, from God's wrath. But then in the next verses, 4 through 9, he gives us the rescuer, right? Um, because of Jesus, we were once separated from Christ, but because of Christ, we're now united to Christ. We were once dead, but because of Jesus, we're now alive. We were once disobedient, but because of Jesus, we now can be obedient. We were once ruled by spiritual evil, but because of Jesus, we can share in his rule over spiritual evil. We were once objects of God's wrath, but because of Jesus, we're now objects of God's affection. We were once kind of vague or maybe uncertain about our sin, but because of Jesus, we have specific awareness of our sin. We were once walking in sin, but because of Jesus, we're now walking in good works. We were once destined for hell, but because of Jesus, we're now seated with Christ in the heavens. Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished for us something we call justification. Justification is sort of this legal term. It implies that a defendant is exempt from liability because of his or her actions were deemed acceptable. So as an example, if I was blowing through red lights on 190, right? I was committing an offense. I get pulled over and the cop comes to the window and he asks me to give an account of my offense and I point to the back seat of the car to, she's not pregnant, but if my wife were pregnant going in labor, right? That would be my justification for my actions that that I would say, hey, these actions are acceptable because of this circumstance, right? And he probably, hopefully, would look at me and say, go to the hospital, right? Because I don't want to deliver a baby in a car, and neither does he. Um, so justification is this term that, that says that we're exempt from liability because some actions were deemed acceptable. In a spiritual sense, we apply this to our sinfulness. That we are liable for our sins. We're, we're guilty and we deserve the penalty. But because of someone's actions, the rescuer, Jesus, we're now deemed acceptable. And I do think that people, even who, who are not, you know, maybe in the church or familiar with Christianity, I do think people are aware of their brokenness. And I do think people 
want to fix their lives. Like, I, I genuinely believe this. I don't, I don't think people want their marriages to end in divorce. I don't think people want to be a financial mess. I don't think people want their kids to be in rebellion. I do think people genuinely want to fix their brokenness. But apart from Christ, you can't do it. The problem is we try sometimes to justify ourselves apart from Jesus. We try to rescue ourselves apart from Jesus. Um, Something that God, uh, probably for the last year, has really kind of challenged me with, and, and I feel like it's how I'm sort of filtering a lot of the world right now, um, it's, it's the passage in Genesis 3, when Satan is tempting Eve, and we read the account of Adam and Eve falling into sin, but Satan does this thing uh, with Eve, where he, he starts off kind of his interaction with her by asking a question. He starts off by saying, did God really say? And then he goes on to, to get Eve to sort of question um, the truth that she knew, right? So I'm just paraphrasing here. But did God really say not to do this? Surely you know, Eve, if you do this, then you'll be made whole. That you will gain the things that you lack. Right? What, what Eve was being tempted with wasn't necessarily the action of eating the fruit. What she was being tempted with was this thought that she wasn't enough. Or that God wasn't enough. He didn't create her as uh, he, and that, he, that she was missing something in um, being created by God. And she needed to fill that void with something else. And I feel like this is sort of the lie that Satan really tempts all believers with every single day. Right? We're, we're constantly every day being woken or being confronted with this temptation by Satan. Did God really say, in terms of our justification, did God really say Jesus is enough? And, and when we're tempted with that question and we're confronted with this lie by Satan, what we begin to do is we begin to start trying to justify ourselves by our own means. And for the non-Christian, this is how they operate. But even for those of us who know Jesus and follow Jesus, um, we're, not, we're not, you know, uh, we can fall into this too. We're susceptible to thinking in this way. So I want to I go through four ways in which people try to justify themselves to make themselves right. So first category of people is that it's the loosely religious people. They assume that they're good enough that no spiritual devotion or extra effort is required for God to be pleased with them. They may make moderate life corrections and learn occasional new life lessons. These are often circumstantial. So maybe it's a young married couple who um, now they have kids, so they want to be more moral, right? They want to raise their kids in a good home. They want to teach them, you know, ethical behavior. But for the most part, these people believe that only really bad people need to be made new. They basically see themselves as good enough for God. We saw some of this when we were in Pittsburgh. Um, I don't, the timeline is a little fuzzy, but when we landed there, there was this report that was published by the state of Pennsylvania, the archdiocese there, and there were some 400-something cases in the Catholic Church of abuse from priests uh, onto priests and, and parishioners. And a lot of this abuse happened in Catholic churches that were in the city of Pittsburgh. And so when we arrived, um, Pittsburgh, very similar city in a lot of ways to New Orleans. One of, one of those similarities is they had a very densely pop, dense Catholic population. And when we arrived and we're getting to know our neighbors, getting to know people, um, kind of telling them, hey, we're here to help start a church and explain to them that we're Protestant. And 
they were excited, Catholic, Catholic uh, people were excited to have a Protestant church, not because we were preaching Jesus, but because in their mind, they connected church with good morals, and they had kids, and they wanted their kids to learn good morals. And they had lost their trust with the Catholic church because of this report that had been published. And so they were open to what we were doing, but in their minds, it's just a way to, to obtain good moral behavior. And these people are kind of loosely religious, but they see themselves basically as good enough for God. Another category in which people try to justify themselves are the secular religious. These people work very hard at social causes because their good can overcome evil. Sometimes they see others' problems more than their own and believe they are the solution to making the world a better place. They become justified by saving the rest of us. This is where social justice comes from. And look, social justice, no problems with it, right? I'm all for feeding the hungry. I'm all for clothing the poor and, and providing housing. I'm all for equality and making sure people have equal access to things that we should have equal access to. But my issue in these areas are if these solutions don't offer Jesus as the Savior, what happens is those causes become the Savior, and they're run by broken people, and they're not ultimately going to provide the justification that's needed to rescue us from our sin issue. Third category here is non-Christian spiritual people. And I would, I would venture to say that um, as Christians, this might be the one that we sort of kind of flirt with the most, right? We try to, these people try to challenge themselves with spiritual self-help insights. They want to become new but have no idea how to achieve that in Christ. They follow the self-help trends that proclaim you can unlock your inner potential and change your life. They become justified by becoming better versions of themselves. So uh, to kind of emphasize this point, I did a quick little Google search. And I said, top self-help books of 2021. And the results popped up. And I clicked the first link. And it was someone's blog. They had reviewed 30 books or read and reviewed 30 books that they posted on their website. And I'm going to read a few of these to you right now, right? And side note, just for what it's worth. If we're in the seventh calendar month and you've already read and reviewed 30 self-help books, I think I would suggest a different strategy. Just, it's <laughs> a lot. Something's not working. So, so here are this person's top five, okay? And I'm not going to say the titles, I'm not endorsing this, and I don't want to knock the authors or anything, but here's the little summaries of quickly of what these books are, right? So book number one on this person's list, this incredible story um, helps us understand that ideas float around in the world trying to find just the right person. Uh, that, that this connection between person and idea is sometimes magical, but when you find it, it leads to a fulfilling life. Oh, no, I didn't read it. That's her review. All right, book number two, right? Um, this book really altered my mindset around stuff. I realized that through decluttering, I can truly experience life the way it was meant to be. That was book two. Book three, um, these are 14 personal stories uh, that the author provides uh, to help change the way that you see the world. This book will help change your perception, help you build the life that you want. Uh, book number four, all about self-discipline. Are you struggling to get past the same lame excuses every day that is keeping you from achieving your dreams and goals? Uh, then your problem might be a lack of self-discipline or your willingness to do what you have to do even when you don't feel like it. If 
By making these changes, you can reach your personal goals, business and money goals, and overall happiness. Book number five, right? Follow these steps in this book, the strategies to manifest a more exciting and meaningful life. And so just based on these summaries, okay, this is what I gather. Book number one, you can find your purpose if you just find the right idea because it's floating in the air. You just have to grab it. Uh, Book number two, you can find peace if you just declutter your life. Book three, you can find hope if you just alter your perspective. Book four, you can find success if you just learn self-discipline. And book five, you can develop strategies to give yourself more meaning. So in a lot of ways, our justification is all about our works, nothing about Jesus. That is what non-Christian spiritual people will try to do in achieving a better version of themselves. And then fourthly, is the devoutly religious people. These people work hard at keeping all the rules of a particular religion in an effort to justify themselves as good and obedient in God's sight. Such people try very hard to do the right thing so God will love them and be pleased with them. If you remember Paul, when he wrote to the Philippians, he listed off his religious record. He said that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul goes on to later say that all of this is rubbish, that knowing Christ compared to this, there's no comparison, right? And devoutly religious people will try to follow all the rules to obtain their justification. And again, all of these categories, just want to re-emphasize this, Um, it places the burden of your justification on you and not Jesus. But we look at Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9, Paul reminds us, for by grace, there's that word again, you have been saved through faith, that this is not your own doing. I don't know how, uh, it's pretty plain to me, right? It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our justification is something that happens externally from us. It's accomplished by the sinless life, substitutionary death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus in our place for our sins as our Savior. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says that for our sake, he made him, talking about Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And there's two things that are happening here in this verse as we're talking about Jesus our rescuer. First thing, God takes away our sinful unrighteousness through Jesus' substitutionary death in our place. So he takes away our sinfulness, our unrighteousness, but he doesn't just leave it at that. Secondly, he then imparts to us Jesus' righteousness in place of our unrighteousness. It's like this double transaction that is happening. And so because he takes away our unrighteousness, we're now declared holy in the sight of God, but because he imparts onto us the righteousness of Christ, we're now empowered to live holy lives by the Spirit of God in Christ alone. So our justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Jesus alone. Our justification is all about Jesus. It's about Jesus' works, not our works that saves us. It's Jesus' life, not our own life, that's our hope. It's Jesus' death, not our religious works, That is our payment. It's Jesus alone who forgives sin and gives righteousness. 
So the proper response is to repent from our sin and trust in Jesus for our justification. We are free to stop working for our righteousness and start working from Jesus' righteousness. My, my question to you is, do you believe that? Right? There, there are two types of people and all the people you will encounter. Right? There's, there's the group who've surrendered to Christ, acknowledged him as Lord, allowed Jesus to justify their sins. There's that group and there's the group who hasn't. Right? Who are not following Jesus. That's it. That's the only kind of division we have as people is those who are saved, those who are not saved. And for those who are not saved, there's some next steps in this on asking that question, do you believe that? Those next steps are to repent and to trust Jesus for your justification. And I would encourage you today, we're going to have a moment of, of just some reflection and prayer at the end of this, that if you are not someone who has done that yet, to please, please trust Jesus for your justification. That thing about grace that I can't understand, it's going to come in and it's going to change your life in the greatest way possible. But for us who have been following Jesus, who understand these truths, I want to challenge you in this way. Um, And and this is going to kind of set up Mark a little bit for next week as he talks about sanctification. Um, Our salvation, our rescue from sin, it's this point in this process, right? That, That we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And when that happens, we're literally, Scripture says, we're taken from darkness and placed into light. It's like this this transition that happens that is, um, you can't deny it, right? It's undeniable. That happens, but then you're on this path of becoming more and more like Jesus in your words and your thoughts and your actions and your feelings. And it's because of Christ and God's grace that we're able to do this. And and this path, I, I like to kind of challenge myself in this way is where do I need to move from unbelief to belief in all areas of my life? Where is this truth about justification where I can start working from Jesus' righteousness? Where does it need to manifest itself more in my life? Where do I need to grow from unbelief to belief in my finances, in my marriage, in my parenting, in my relationships with neighbors? Where do I need to grow in those areas of belief? One of the things that I challenge my students with when we're talking about this kind of topic is I ask them to kind of look at this through uh, this lens, and it's this head-heart-hands connection, right? And I tell my students that um, your head is where knowledge exists. It's where information exists. It's it's how you learn things, right? You you gain uh, knowledge through reading or through experience or through uh, information. Like, you, you acquire it in your head. Your heart is where emotions exist, but it's also where belief happens, and then your hands are, are, it's activity, right? It's where your actions take place. And the connection that I, that I try to communicate with them is this, is that the way in which you think, it informs how you believe. And the way in which you believe informs how you act, right? So if I know what's being input in terms of the truth of God, like, like I know this, right? This is dependable. It's reliable. That's the input into your head, Right? But I look at your actions, the output of what you're doing, if the actions aren't in line with the truth of God. So if your actions don't line up with what God's word saying, the gap to me that gets exposed is a gap in our belief. There is this exposure of lack of belief, lack of faith in our heart. And my challenge to you, church, if you're following Jesus, is as, as we're thinking about justification, is where do we need to grow in our unbelief 
to, to move into belief in all areas of our life? Where do we need to trust the word of God so that our actions and our words uh, more accurately reflect Christ? So we're saved from sin. We're saved by Jesus. And here uh, is a part that I uh, delight in and I'm so thankful for. We're not just saved to be put on a shelf until we die and then we get to go to heaven, right? Jesus saves us for a purpose. He saves us for a purpose. Paul reads in, uh, or writes in uh, verse 10 of Ephesians 2, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I'm so thankful that God sent us his son to save us, but I'm also thankful that he saved me for a purpose, that my days are significant. When I walk out my house in the morning, what I do matters because it's kingdom work. And, and it's through me that he wants to communicate that same grace that I experienced to the people around me. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that God saw me and valued me and loved me enough to, to give me a purpose to where my days matter. They're significant. Your life is important. Paul says this in verse uh, 19 of Ephesians 2, which I'm going to read the rest of this for you at the very end here. But something I just wanted to point out, Paul says that we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now check out the identity statement that's in that verse, right? We are citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Um, maybe some of, you, some of you have some house rules, right? Maybe some of y'all have some house rules. And Mark, if you want to kind of make your way up, uh, you can start doing that. But uh, maybe you have house rules in your home. One of my favorite commercials right now, um, kind of line of commercials that is out there, makes me laugh every time, are the progressive commercials where the guy's coaching people how not to become like their parents, you know? And there's a recent one where uh, they're in a room and there's a garbage can and they're kind of all standing around the garbage can and there's this woman who's got a sign and she's holding it up and it says, live, love, laugh. Those are the house rules, right? And he's like do we really need a sign to remind us to live, love, and laugh? And everyone's like, yes, yes, we do. And he's like, no, no, we don't. And they're, they're throwing the, the signs away in the trash can, right? But as members of the household of God, we have some house rules. And Jesus clearly states these house rules, and he, he does so so succinctly and, and with clarity. He says basically this, that if you are in this house, people will know you by your love for one another. That's so simple. That's it. That's the house rule. As a citizen and saint and, the member, and a member of the household of God, that's the rule in which we get to live by. We're going to be known for our love for one another. We're going to be known for our love for God. We're going to be known for our love for our neighbor. And when we talk about this rescue that took place, that we were saved from sin, saved by Jesus, he rescued us into a purpose. And that purpose is to wake up every day and love people the way that Jesus loved people. Mark Driscoll, a pastor, says it like this. He says, infuse each moment of your day with the grace shown to you by Christ. There is nothing more powerful in this world than a Christian rightly understanding the grace of God and applying that grace to all facets of life. By doing so, we show Christ to our spouses, our children, our friends, our family, our coworkers, even our enemies that many may be saved. 
Thank you, Jesus, that we were also saved for a purpose. I do want to read this to you. Uh, It's the the last part of Ephesians 2. And and I want this as we close, as you hear these words, um, I'm not sure if they're on me behind or not, but as you hear these words, I want you to think about the identity statements that Paul's addressing here with the Ephesians. And when I say identity statements, what what I'm telling you to think about is who you are now because of Christ because of this great rescue, because we've been saved, because we've had justification by Jesus, think about who we are now because of that. And as you reflect on these statements, I hope, as it does with me, I hope it moves your heart into a spirit of worship and and thankfulness and that we're, we're humbled by this. We didn't deserve any of this, but it's by God's grace and his love for us that we get to experience this. And so let me just read this over uh, you right now. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you are at the same time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of of Christ. Thank you, Jesus. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you today humbled with thankful hearts. God, we thank you for your grace that you give us. We don't, we don't deserve it, but you pour it out on us. You're generous with it. It's, it's in abundance and it's in excess of what we deserve, but you freely give it to us. God, thank you for that love. Jesus, thank you for, humili- for your humility that you would come to this earth to walk amongst sinners, to love and to engage sinners, to be with sinners and to ultimately through your obedience, die for sinners. Jesus, thank you for your obedience. Thank you for your care for us. Spirit, thank you for the way in which you unify us. Thank you for uh, allowing us to see that there is a purpose. Thank you for um, sanctifying us and purifying our hearts. Thank you for uh, helping mold us more to the image of Christ. Help us every day to be burdened for Jesus's righteousness. Help us to pursue that. Help us to love Jesus the way in which you loved us. Help us to show our neighbors, our coworkers, our children, our spouses, the people we encounter that you are the great rescuer. And that apart from our works, or it's not our works that save us, but it's you, Jesus. Thank you so much for those truths. God, as we close today, I pray that our hearts would just be moved into a a moment of just worship. We can reflect and be thankful 
and celebrate. And as Mark said earlier, rehearse this beautiful joy that we have. We ask this in your name. Amen.